Let's get rolling. We're going to be teaching today. Now, next week, we'll get back on track with the series we've been doing, talking about the festivals. Getting, we, we finished up the spring. We got started in the fall festivals. If you weren't here and you don't know what I'm talking about, is that there are seven festivals that the Jewish people have celebrated for thousands of years. They were ordained by God, but every single one of them point to Jesus. And we've been working our way through those, um, showing the, the prophetic nature of them and the timeline of which Jesus is going to return, how the spring festivals were fulfilled when he was here and how the fall festivals are, are showing what's going to happen when he returns and how there are pictures of that. Uh, but we, we've taken a little bit of time off for that just given to the summer. We've had some guests in and whatnot. But today we're going to talk about worldview. Now I, I taught on something very similar to this about two years ago. But I wanted to go back and backtrack a little bit on it. Not because there's been new development but it's because if you look at the world around us we have no substance to which we, we stand on things. I mean, you think about it. We don't even know what bathroom to use anymore in this country. We can't figure it out. Because there is no, like, transcendental truth. It's just whatever you feel like, do it. The problem with that mentality is when you have a worldview, you have to have it grounded in something. And the definition of worldview is this, this particular philosophy of life or conception of the world around us. In other words, when you have a worldview, that is which you... Filter everything through every decision you make, everything that you believe is filtered through this concept of having this worldview. And when you look at that, is that is this is how we vote, this is how we decide what kind of work we want to do, this is the charities that we give to or don't give to, is based upon this worldview. If you've noticed with the younger generation right now, that you're in your college age, that everything that they're doing has a lot of good-natured um, uh, nonprofit type stuff going along to a charity things like there's businesses that are being started and all of them have a portions of their proceeds going to support some sort of charity it's something that is ingrained in these young people because it's just a common thing here commonality doesn't happen on accident it's stuff in which we learn now our worldviews develop as we're young and are really hardened in as we get into our high school and our college years because you think about it, when you go off to college, you're bombarded with information that you've never been before. For the most part, it's the first time you've been away from home, all right? So you're no longer underneath your parents' thumbs to a point, and now you're making decisions on your own. And the influence around you there is going to really play a part on what you decide you're going to do uh, going forward. And when we talk about it from a Christian perspective, it's not that just we have a worldview. Everybody has a worldview. But your worldview has to best describe the things of which and explain the world that we live in. And we have to have what we call a biblical worldview. That this Bible is the foundation upon which we believe, the which we act, the way we do things. And um, too often today in the church, we no longer do that. We don't have a biblical worldview. We just kind of go along with the flow. It is amazing that how much the church is influenced by the things that are outside the church. The body of Christ should be influenced by no thing other than the Spirit of God in this Bible, but yet it is constantly. You have Christians on every side of the aisle with every single uh, social event that's going on. And why is that? Why do you have Christians that are pro-life and you have Christians that are pro-choice? Why is that? Should it be that way? Is the Bible not clear on it? The answer is yes, the Bible is clear on it. But because we don't have a biblical worldview, we explain away the things that we see and the things that we know. Now, a biblical worldview is this, a biblical philosophy of life or a biblical conception of the world. If we profess to be Christ followers, then our truth comes from the Bible. Now, there is no such thing as, as anything outside of absolute truth. There's not relative truth, there's not anything like that, but yet the world around us tells us that it is. They'll, they'll tell you that 2 plus 2 can equal 7, as long as you believe it is. 
You think I'm making this stuff up, but this is exactly the stuff we see. Well, the problem is with this Bible is we have to know what it says, we have to believe what it says, and we have to understand where it comes from. That this is not just a book that was written, and I talk about this often, but it's a collection of books, 66 authors, over 1,500 years span. Or excuse me, 66 books, 40 authors. And yet it's got one theme. It's all about bringing Jesus into the picture and saving mankind. The Old Testament is the story of a nation about the nation of Israel and how God chose them and separated them from the rest of the world as the ones who would usher in the Messiah. And in the New Testament, it's a story about a man. That man is Jesus Christ. Now, you don't just find Jesus in the pages of the New Testament. You actually find him all throughout archaeology, all throughout historical writings. He's written everywhere. So there was a real man named Jesus, or Yahshua, whatever you want to call him, but does that make him the Son of God? Not necessarily. That's where we got to get in. Is like, do we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, or do we simply believe that he is a man that professes good and humanistic principles and things that make us better? It's experience that develops our worldview. When we read something in the Bible and we don't like it, we don't change the Bible. Explaining these things away and understanding them and stuff is difficult at times, but the problem is, is that we no longer know Scripture. That's why we spent the last year going through in that series of Emmaus Road, going through and understanding how we find Christ all the way throughout the Bible, how all of it is dealing with Him. And so when we get into this stuff, there are things that we have to understand. Every worldview has to explain origin, where we come from. We have to explain it, how we got here. We have to explain why, what meaning is in life, why everybody's searching for their purpose in this world. We have to be able to explain basic morality. We have to be able to explain, ultimately, what our destiny is. There's only one worldview that will explain all four of those with any commonality, and that is the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview. Now, when it comes to the nation of origins, there are three basic arguments when we break this down. You first got the cosmological argument. And that is everything that has a beginning has a beginner. These are not things out of the pages of the Bible. This is out of philosophy and science. This is not stuff that I'm making up. But this is law, the law of causality, that everything that has a beginning has a beginner. If there was an effect, there was a cause. You never have an effect with no cause. It doesn't work that way, right? Then you get into the teleological argument. Telos meaning design, and it says every design has a designer, Right? Did anybody walk up to church this morning and look at the building and like, man, I wonder how that got here. No, somebody built it, right? You've never, you've never wondered, it's like, man, I wonder how my car came together all upon itself with no influence from a designer whatsoever, right? And then, of course, morality, the moral argument is that every moral law has a moral lawgiver, and we'll get into this. So when we talk about the, nation, or the, the concept of origins, where we come from, this starts in the very beginning in Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The very first verse in the Bible ends any and all arguments for somebody who is truly adhering to a biblical worldview. Where did we come from? How did we get here and who made us? His all answered is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on and talks about how he created the animals and created man. I've seen people my entire life attempt to do biblical somersaults all through scripture with these humanistic ideas that, 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 that they can make evolution fit inside the Bible, that God had nothing to do with it. Or what they do is they call it theistic evolution, that evolution is how we got to where we are today, but God was the one that was guiding it. 
I watched somebody one time have this discussion, and I, seriously, it gave me a intellectual constipation. I'm not kidding you. But he was sitting there like, well, you see that God created the, the birds of the air, and then he created the fish. And, and he said, you, you see God beginning to separate, though. This is evolution working its way through. Then he finally gets to man. Well, there's a problem with that. Because what did God tell Adam to do? Go back and name all those animals that have already died out to get to this point. That doesn't work. God never once said that he uses the process of evolution. Does that mean evolution is not true? No. Microevolution is true. In other words, the change inside of a kind. But the goody UV of the zoo does not work because there's not a scrap of evidence and it's certainly unbiblical. But yet, we have scholars that will sit here and tell you, no, this is what happened. This is how it had to work. Why? Because science says so. Has science ever been wrong? Oh boy, has it ever. You know, a lot of times they'll say that Christians were the ones that started the flat earth concept. That's not true. It was scientists. Remember at one point that the sun revolved around the earth? Who said that? Scientists. They were wrong. And we can see that. We've got all of these things. Is that if the idea that you hold is contrary to scripture, then the idea that you hold is simply wrong. Now, there are things the scripture does not address and doesn't talk about. In fact, you drove up in something, right? Does God forbid the use of vehicles? Nope, doesn't talk about them at all. Does that mean they're okay to use? Yeah, I suppose so. Right? He didn't talk about potato chips or email either. Those are okay as well, especially the potato chips. Okay? But God created all things. He created the earth. He created the universe. He created the plants, the animals, all the sea creatures. He created man and woman. He created each one individually, but all reply, rely upon one another for existence. It's almost as if he knew exactly what it needed to be for us to make it. Any ideas that are contrary to this fall outside of the Bible and are missing the point. Evolution is the greatest idea of the age, and we watch Christians trying to harmonize this, but it doesn't work. You can't make it work, because evolution itself is not science, it is philosophy. You know what the PH and the PhD stands for? Philosophy. You cannot do science without philosophy. It's impossible. Those two things have to work together. They claim evolution is the greatest breakthrough in modern science, and, this, and to deny this means that you can't properly understand any Sciences. Well, let me read you a quote from a scientist, all right? Stanley Jakey. It says, from Copernicus to Newton, it was not deism, but Christian theism that served as a principal factor helping the scientific enterprise reach self-sustaining maturity. At one point, you had God-fearing people who were what we call scientists. Now, today, they're not allowed to be. They, they can have their cute little beliefs and all of that, but it cannot interfere with their work or they get fired from their job. I mean, just recently there was a professor who was a, a paleontologist, and inside a, a, a triceratop horn, he found soft tissue. And according to evolution, it's soft tissues, in other words, blood marrow, vessels, things like that, cannot last more than 10,000 years. So he wrote up his findings, saying that we have found this in here. But he was a born-again believer. So the school fired him, saying, you cannot bring your Christian beliefs in here. That's not what he was saying. He was stating what he found, but what they wanted him to do was ignore that because the fact that they found soft tissues in this means that the idea of this evolutionary in these billions of years does not fit. And you know what? Since he's found that, they're finding it all over the place. Major scientists, and even including the guy that was uh, used in Jurassic Park, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, would talk about how when they go into the bone room, 
with all the fossils, it always had this weird odor of like rotting flesh and they couldn't figure out what it was. But when they would begin to dissect these bones, they're finding soft tissue. Oh, give scientists enough time, they'll come up with an excuse for it. Brian Young was in a debate with a professor at Minot University one time and brought this fact up. He said, now, you say that they can't last more than 10,000 years, but now we're finding them inside of bones that you've dated at billions of years old. Please explain that. He said, well, I guess we were wrong. Soft tissue can last, last more than 10,000 years. right? Because you can't get away from the idea. Why? His worldview says... That in the beginning there was nothing, and then nothing exploded, creating everything. And that's how we got to where we are today. This neo-Darwinianism goes in the face of the Bible. But we don't think biblically. We just kind of go along for the ride. We don't have this biblical worldview when it comes to origins, even though we should. Can we explain that how God created everything? Nope, wasn't there to see it. I don't know exactly how he did it, I just know that he did it, and that alone was the foundation of science. It wasn't an attempt to find God, it was, it was an attempt to understand how God did it. That's where science started. It all went south. But we get away from the idea of origins, then we get into the idea of meaning. And meaning is, is the idea of, of why am I here? What is my purpose in life? You hear this all the time. You hear it in churches. You've got to find your destiny. And you hear it all in, in, in motivational speeches like, you got to find why you're on this earth. Okay? Let me read from Colossians chapter 1. It says, in verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created that were in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now watch. All things were created through him and for him. Why were you put here? For him. It tells us how they were created. It was through him. But more importantly, it was for him. So how do we know? How do we explain this away? 1 John 4, 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. What is God? God is love. Not this passive love that we seem to think of. This love in which we can say, oh, I love this or I love that. Even love in the idea of, of who we are and my spouse and I love it. This emotional feeling. That's not what love is. Yes, maybe that's part of it or that's what it comes to. But love for people and love for individuals is you're willing to do what it takes to help them out regardless of the situation and regardless of offense. In other words, if you walked into a room and somebody is shooting heroin up in their arm, I think we would all agree in here, that's a very bad thing. And the time in which you would say something is not because you hate them, but because you love them. Because it will destroy your life and it very likely would kill you. Yes? We all agree with that? But the culture today is saying, well, we shouldn't say anything because if you love them, then you just let them do what they want. It, you just, just leave them alone. We don't do that with our children. What do we do when they get out of line? Why do we punish our kids? So that they will learn right from wrong. So they don't do the stupid things. Like, it's not smart to play in the highway. It might be fun, but you also could end up as a puddle of goo. It's not good. It's not safe. What are we doing? We're protecting them. Are we doing it because we don't love them? No, we're doing it because we do love them. So God being made of love, the essence of what love, created us to be an outlet for that love. Now watch this. Verse 9, 1 John 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Okay, how is the love of God manifested? Through Jesus. So now we have it on earth, right? We know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did He love the world? Yes, He did. Were we still sinners when He sent His Son? Oh, you better believe it. But He sent Him anyway because He loved the world. But Jesus explains to us why 
Here we go. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. God created us in the beginning to show the greatest expression of love that is possible, to lay down your life for that person. Okay, go back. God knows everything, right? He knew in the beginning that he would create us and we'd screw up. That's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve fall. You see Satan fall. You've got death entered into the world because of sin. That's why the world is the way it is today. It can all be explained through scripture. And yet you're sitting here thinking, and this is what I think. God, why did you do this if you knew it was going to happen this way? I mean, reverse that for a minute. If you knew that the numbers of the winning lottery ticket before they came out, would you not go play? Of course you would, right? It's free money. I made a bet with a guy. I'll tell you, this is the example of free money. When it's no longer gambling, it's a sure thing. I have a friend of mine. He's a large portly man. He loves food. He's got a passion for food, okay? He bet me one time he wanted to lose some weight. He said, I'm going to lose 100 pounds in six weeks. I looked at him and said, the only way you're going to do that is to cut off your leg. There's no way possible. He said, I'll bet you $100 I can lose 100 pounds in six weeks. And I said, you're on, buddy. I even got some other people in on it, too. We were willing to give him odds, whatever it took to motivate him. He, uh, he was heavier at the end of that six weeks. But that wasn't gambling. That was free money. It was like, oh, this is awesome, right? It's no different than that. But why would God do that? Because God knows the ultimate outcome. Okay? When we talk about this meeting, God showed us in his love that he created us knowing we would fall and that he would have to send his son into the world to die for us. But that is the greatest expression of who he is. Mark 12, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? We are here to express God's love in human form to the world around us. And in order to do that, what are we to be willing to do? Lay down our lives for our friends. You have people all over this world today that are being killed because of their Christian faith. There's a pastor in Turkey that is currently in prison for preaching the gospel. What was he willing to do? Lay down his life for the lost. The same thing that Jesus did. We embody that. What is their meaning here? Why are we here? That's it. Now, they'll try to search all over to try to find us. We're always looking for something to find fulfillment. And the truth is, we'll never find fulfillment. Jim Carrey one time said that I hope everybody can get everything they want and become filthy rich so they can realize that getting everything you want and becoming filthy rich does not bring you what you're looking for. That They always say money can't buy happiness. Okay? I'm willing to try sometime and just find out. I mean, I'm willing to get a boat somewhere and do all that stuff, but so far, not so good. But, but they always say money can't buy happiness. Why? Because it's empty in and of itself. We're trying to find fulfillment. There's why people, you see, have you ever seen the show Hoarders? Ever seen the show? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You watch it and feel really good about yourself, don't you, right? It's like, man, I got a lot of stuff. They got a lot of stuff, you know? And it's like, or uh, the, watch my 600-pound life. You know, do what Amy and I do. We sit around, we watch that, we eat ice cream while we watch it. We're like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But, but you watch these things and you feel better. But what in both of those scenarios, what is going on? Something has caused a void in their life that they are trying to either fill it with stuff or fill it with food. 
So they've either gotten to the point in their house where they can no longer walk around. They have paths that they can walk through. They can't sleep in their beds. They can't use their bathroom because it's gotten so bad. Or they're 600 pounds. And they're a life or death moment, all because of the decisions they make in an attempt to fill a hole and find meaning and purpose here. It cannot be found in stuff as hard as we try. Yes, you'll find happy people. But I have seen some of the richest people that I've ever met, and I'm talking multi, multi, multi-millionaires that are so depressed. Why do filthy rich actors kill themselves? And I mean, because to us, the world is their oyster. They have everything. They have what we inspire to have. Man, I wish I could just do it once, you know. I always joked around. It's like, you know, somebody had said that if they ever had the opportunity to play in the NFL, they wouldn't want to play if they were a backup. I'm like, are you kidding me? Sit me on the bench and pay me a million bucks a year to do it. I'm in. I'll watch from the sidelines. I have no problem with that. And they're like, well, yeah, but I want to get out there and play. I'm like, have you seen the size of those guys trying to tackle you? It's safe over here and the check is good. I mean, come on. You guys with me? I'm going off on a tangent here. But the point being is that we're searching for something. Everybody is. Believer, non-believer. But you cannot find meaning outside of Scripture. This is the only thing that finds fulfillment. That's why Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. Now, we always say mammon is money. No, it's not. Mammon was, was a god that they worshipped, but it was a, a centered around the idea of commerce. And that we're, here we are, we're trying to worship this. We've got to get this. We've got to have this. We need the latest and greatest and the best and all that kind of stuff. You'll never find meaning there. You'll never find fulfillment, but we're looking for it. I've watched evolutionists try to explain meaning. Okay, here, here's what they do. Ready? Bear with me here. This is going to be painful. They'll say, well, the meaning and purpose of life is that we can pass on our genes to the next uh, the next through, through the process of evolution. So we have children to pass that genome on. That way we can continue as a species. Okay, do you realize that if at one point you say that there is any meaning to life whatsoever, that that is a standard of which there is somebody giving meaning to? If evolution in and of itself is true, that we are going from one species to the next and so on and so forth. How can you ever express any kind of meaning? Because it is the survival of the fittest. It doesn't work. Again, this is where the philosophy comes in. You are speaking out of both sides of your mouth there. But yet they do it and they get away from it with it. Because if you question it, oh my goodness, you can't do that. All right, but what about morality? How do we explain morality in the world we live in? Because, again, if there's no standard of what is right and wrong, then it's a matter of opinion. Now, morality is about ethics. It's about truth. All things are absolute, which means that they are true for all people everywhere. Or they'll say that they are relative. They're only true for that individual. Okay? So they'll say that, well, that's true for you, but not for me. You know, Jesus might be true for you, but he's not true for me. Which is a dangerous place to be, because if it is true at all then all people need to come to him. Now, here's the bottom line. Without good, there is no good and evil. Right? There can't be. What would you compare it with? If there was no standard of good, then how could we ever call something good or evil? Either way. It's a matter of opinion. Moral values are absolute, and they are discovered. They are not invented, right or wrong. C.S. Lewis said it like this. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color or, indeed, of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. They'll say things like, oh, you know, I like vanilla, you like chocolate, as an example. Uh, see, it's relative. 
It's, it's expressed in how you want. Romans 2, chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 14, it says, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law by nature. What does that mean? Inside of them, right? They're doing those things which are right. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge secret, the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What is he saying? That there is a moral framework that we all live by and is the basis for this is God. The Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, the law of Christ, to love God and love people, all revolve around this idea of a moral order. Man did not invent morality. They simply discover what is right and what is wrong in America. All of our laws are based out of Scripture. They got every one of them based off the Ten Commandments. That is why for so long that you would see the Ten Commandments posted in courtrooms. There are very few of those left anymore, but that's where they were because our laws were based off the idea of you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't murder, all of these things. We would all agree, well, that's bad. You shouldn't murder, right? If there is no moral framework, then everything is simply a matter of opinion. Mother Teresa, good person, right? Did a lot of good work. Adolf Hitler, bad dude. Killed millions of Jews and other people, right? Who's good, who's bad? If there is no standard of good, it is simply a matter of opinion. You guys following me on this? There has to be something. And you and I, as believers, have to come from this biblical worldview. The idea of economics comes from the idea of if you don't work, you don't eat. Right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know, know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked, worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For, here, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread." This is not talking about helping those who are poor and needy or, or maybe can't take care of themselves. It's talking about lazy people. And the idea here, you hear you got Paul. you got to understand this. He's writing to him. He said, we were there with you. We didn't take one thing from you, but we worked alongside you. We went out and mended for ourselves. We took care of ourselves. We bought our own food because we didn't want to be a burden on you. Right? I wish more believers and, and people in ministry would follow this trend here. And that I don't want to be a burden to the ministry of which I serve and that it is not there to serve me. But unfortunately, that's not the case. But it gives this commandment that if you will not work, then you shall not eat. It's the idea of socialism where everything goes into one pot and it's distributed. You know what they call that? Theft. You know in the early days that the pilgrims, when they came here, attempted that? And they all nearly starved to death. Because quickly people realize that, well, if, if James Smith is down here and he's farming all these acres and stuff and he's producing corn and I'm going to get half of that anyway, why am I going to make my own? Because eventually you run out of other people's stuff. But yet we've got a popular movement today in socialism that we should, just, we should steal from the rich and give to the poor. Yeah, that sounds really great on paper. 
It's different from the poor and needy who aren't able to take care of themselves. But you know what? That was never the commandment of the government. That was the commandment of the church to take care of those. There's a reason that all these social programs fail and are so bogged down is because never once was it on the government to take care of that. Romans 13 tells us the purpose of government. It's to bring the law of God out. We're not going to get off into that today. But the church was there to take care of them and help them. Genesis 1, verse 28 says, Then God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's the thing. He says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Before God gave Adam a family, He gave him a job. Here you think about this for a moment. He, here's a perfect world, something that you and I have never experienced and probably can't even remotely understand, where all things were provided by God, and yet he still gave him work to go do. You're to fill the earth. You're to subdue it, bring it into the standard. You're to be fruitful in life, produce something, and multiply. Have you some babies, right? Babies are good, not at 2 a.m. when they're crying. But normally, they're all right. You've got the idea of the prodigal son. We know the prodigal son, right? He gets his inheritance, but gives it to both sons. He gets his inheritance, and he runs off, and he squanders it. He runs away. He lives life as long as he can until the money runs out. Then he doesn't know what to do. He has no choice but to finally come home. And in Luke 15, 17, it says this, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired mans. It says when he came to his senses, when he finally realized, here my father has provided all this. Here I am starving because I've squandered everything he gave me before. And yet I can just come back and he's going to allow me back into the fold. It's the same thing with God. We've all screwed up. We all do dumb things. The question is, is what do we do with our resources? How do we use them? The Bible tells us that we are to be good stewards, and we don't have time to get into all of that today, but we are to be good stewards with it. And yet, many times we're not. You know, we're just foolish with what we do. But the purpose of money is a tool, is a tool for ministry. It doesn't mean you can't have a nice thing and enjoy life, but ultimately it's to be used for the glory of God. And if those nice things own you, then you're missing the point. And so we get into this, we get into this whole meaning in life and all of that, but what, about, what does the Bible say about government and politics? Okay, Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Moses was the sole one that made the judgments for all the people. They would come to him with whatever was going on. He would make the decision. Okay, there's a lot of people, a lot of Jews he was dealing with. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me and to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. What does this sound like? It's like court, right? What's the law say? It's what he's figuring out. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God and for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them 
to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. For it will be easier for you that they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and, and God so commands you, then you'll be able to endure in all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. This is exactly where the, the founding fathers of America got the idea of this government, that you have leaders over the nation, you got leaders over the states, you got leaders over the cities. And, and this is where this whole idea comes from. Again, it's having a biblical worldview, which they had. Now, what does the Bible tell us about the role of the government, what we are to do? As I said, Romans 13 talks about that. 1 Timothy 2 gives us some of the four characteristics of us towards government and, and whatnot. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 says, Therefore I exert first of all with all supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. We do all the things listed so that we may lead, lead quiet and peaceable life. The truth is, is we should not have government interfering with our lives. There's a purpose of government laid out, but it has gone off on its own hand. Why do we believe this way? Because the Bible says so. There's scriptures for all of this stuff. We don't make this stuff up. But we live peaceful lives in godliness and reverence to him. The purpose of our life is to live in that way. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. We've seen it on both sides in this country. But y'all, we have no idea. I mean, you think about it. We've been a nation for over 250 years now, I think. I haven't done the exact math, but it's going to be pretty close to that. We've had one constitution. Since that same time, several countries have had dozens and dozens of them. They're always having an uprising. They're redoing the government and all of that. There's something unique about it. When we talk about American exceptionalism, this wasn't some braggadocious thing that was said by American people. It was by a Frenchman in the 1800s that could not figure out why America was so different than the rest of the world. Because by the same time, in the early 1800s, they had been through 13 constitutions since America had been founded. America was still on the same one and could not figure out what it was. And they came over and said, you know what? It is the fear of God that makes them the way that they are. That's why the founder said that without God, you cannot rule this people. It's not possible. It's the foresight of the founding fathers that brought us into this place. And John Adams said in a speech to the military in 1798, he warned all the people. He says, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. When government fails to fulfill their God-given responsibility to defend its citizens, protect their human rights, and promote justice, Christians should be the first to demand a higher standard. But yet, we don't. Because somewhere along the line, we bought it in the idea, hey, we're just supposed to sit back. We, don't, we just trust God. We just pray. We don't need to vote. We don't need to do that. When unjust laws are enacted, Christians should rise in protest to bring the government back in line. Where is this all coming from? Morality, the reasons we do what we do. Well, what about family? In Genesis 2, 21, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they should become one flesh. 
In chapter 1, we know that God told Adam to multiply in, 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 in this model that he has to follow the way of doing this and doing it the way human beings were. But he, the man will leave his father and leave his mother. And this was a command before there were other, ever a father or a mother. It was not there. But the family model is ordained by God. It's the husband and the father, the wife who is the mother. You've got the children. You can get into the dog and the cat. If you're not walking with the Lord, you'll have cats. But other than that, you'll have dogs, maybe hamsters, even a bird, but no cats because they are the spawn of Satan themselves. But we don't get to define what God defined. We don't get to put our spin on it. We do what God says because we have a biblical worldview. Because if we believe that the Bible is true and we believe the words are in it. You know, it's amazing that so many people have no problem accepting the whole part about getting to heaven. But it's all the other stuff that they want to leave out. I had a young lady who tell me one time that she believes about 95% of what the Bible had to say. I said, well, which 5% don't you believe? Oh, you know, the parts where is God is saying this and that and getting off into a whole bunch of other things. I said, well, what makes you think that 5% is not true if the other 95% is true? Well, I just don't believe it. I'm like, well, your belief in it is irrelevant. Believing that something is real or not real doesn't matter if it's true. That's all that matters. We get out of this idea of morality. This is the morality. This is why we think the way we think. This is why you see Christians out protesting Planned Parenthood. Because they believe that the sanctity of life and that God created that life and formed them in his mother's womb. And we act as if abortion, abortion was a new thing, but there were laws on it in the early part of the country. Well, they said as soon as a woman knows that she is pregnant, that life is protected by the rights of the Constitution. There were uh, uh, court cases about this, and we ignore all of that stuff and act like it didn't exist. But there's a reason we believe It's not just because we're fun haters, and it's not because we just want to do this. It's because there is a basis for morality. And I've showed you this before when we talk about morality, is that if God is the standard, when we draw, if I drew a straight line on a piece of paper and I drew a crooked line, how do you know this line is crooked? It's because you've seen the straight one. You know what a straight line looks like, therefore that crooked one stands out. We know what God or what good is because God is the standard of good. Therefore, we all fall short of that. Therefore, we are all evil and need a savior. And if we accept that Savior, then we can get into the part of destiny. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are two choices, life or death. The wages of sin is death. Sin came into the world through Adam and Eve and Lucifer. Death as a result of that sin, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through whom? Christ Jesus. One way, not many ways. Not any way you want to make it, one way. It's the gift of God, which means He gives it to you freely if you're willing to accept it, that eternal life. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Let's stop there for a minute. How did sin enter the world? One man, Adam, right? And why is there death? Sin, just tells us, and death through sin. And because of that, death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. You guys following this? This is why there's death. You know what sickness is? Slow death. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed because there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. We've talked about these types of shadows, these pictures. Jesus was a type of Christ. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, 
much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And if there's ever anything that makes you want to yell amen, that's it. Because it's through the work of Jesus. Death entered as, because, as a result of sin through Adam. Death transfers to all people because all have sinned. But Christ came to take that away. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. The judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. It's just if, if I never sinned. It's in other words, that blood of Christ it was poured out for you and me that we could live eternally for with Him. For him. We have a time on this earth and this time is short. And in comparison to this eternity, time is nothing. Time is a physical precept that God created in the beginning. God. There was no beginning before the beginning. That's when it started. He created time. We've been on this time sequence ever since. But compare that to no time in eternity. It's impossible. Why? Because we don't think like that. We can't process that type of information. But God came in. And he said, you know what? Death is here because of sin, and you all keep sinning. I'm giving you a way out. It's your get-out-of-jail-free card. If you choose to take it. But you know what happens? Is many never choose to take it. They'll say one of a couple of things. They'll say, you know what? Maybe when I'm older and a little closer to death, then I'll come to Christ and I'll, I'll do all that church and that Jesus stuff. The problem with that is, is tomorrow's not promised to anybody. We don't know what's going to happen. Unfortunately, we've done several funerals over the last couple of months, and they've all been people who were taken too early that never probably thought it was going to happen to them. I have buried young people. I had an 18-year-old collapse on a basketball court five years ago. 18 years old, healthy as a horse, collapsed, died. No explanation. The doctors have no idea what happened, even after the autopsy. I praise God that that young man gave his life to Christ when he came. Because he came to our church, he came to our youth ministry, he gave his life to Christ, and now I know where he's at because of that decision that he made. But do you think anybody plans on burying an 18-year-old? Absolutely not. But it happens. So they think, oh, just wait, I can get that later. Or they say, well, you know what, my religion is love. I just love everybody. Oh, that's great, you're going to love them all straight to hell. That's fantastic, love them. What is love? We're telling them the truth. We tell them the truth of the gospel that Jesus came for you and died for you and me. Not just for you, but also for me. Because I'm every bit of a sinner as you are. I had a friend of mine one time. I've been preaching the gospel to this guy since we were in the 8th grade. That was a few years ago. For Katie, it was just a couple years ago. But for me, it was a long time ago, right? That's a joke, y'all. I give her a hard time how young she is. All right, bear with me. Tough crowd. Here we go. But he told me one time, he said, you know what? He's like, I can't accept this God stuff. It's like, not that I don't believe in God, but how can a guy like Adolf Hitler, all he has to do is repent? That's it? I said, well, yeah, basically. And he said, that just doesn't make sense to me. I said, well, what bad things have you done? And this is a guy who was in prison for uh, attempted murder. So, I mean, you know, he's had his fair share. 
spent seven years in prison. It was a whole bad situation. I don't want to get off into the details, but, but he's like, well, you know, I've done some bad things. But he's like, you know, he's like, if I was good like you, then I wouldn't have to worry about it. I'm like, good like me? What makes you think I'm good? He's like, well, you're always doing nice things for people, and, and you help people out, and, and like you spent your whole life doing church stuff, trying to help people out. And I'm like, what part of that makes me good? I said, because, and then we get into this whole thing. What is your standard of good? I said, if, if I'm your standard, you're hosed, buddy. I do not be anybody's standard to live by. God should be that standard. Don't compare yourself to me. I said, in your eyes, we might be good or bad. I might be better than you, but that's irrelevant. All that matters is where you fall in God's eye. And unless you've made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, you're falling short. But it's at that moment when we make that decision that now we're right with God. And now our destiny is secured. There are so many people who fear death. Okay? Here's the crazy statistic. You know what the number one fear in the world is? Public speaking. You don't know what the number two is? Death. Which means you'd rather be dead than stand up here. Wrap your head around that for a moment. Okay? This ain't so bad. Even if you do a bad job, you're still alive. You live to see another day. Maybe you get better at it. But the number two fear is death. What are you afraid of? The unknown. Because we don't know. Unless the Bible is true. And then we can know that our faith and our hope can be in God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a historical event that took place that science has no explanation for, and the history books have no explanation for how this man who was perceived dead is back three days later. doesn't happen very often. Pretty much never. But that's why, that's what Peter talks about, that our faith and our hope can be in him. Guys, why am I telling you all of this? Is that we as the body of Christ and as the church of believers, not Grace Church, the church, big church, big C, have to have a biblical worldview. That we don't filter our lives through our experience and what we perceive is correct. We filter everything through this word. And what God says is wrong, we say is wrong. And what God says is right, what we say is right. And we don't go the other way. And when we're out there and we're dealing with people in our lives, we have to tell them the truth. It's, 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 think about it like this. Penn, Penn Gillette, you guys know who Penn is? Penn, uh, magi- Penn and Teller, that help? Anything? Magician, you guys know what I'm talking about? He's a devout atheist. Doesn't believe in God at all. You know, he thinks we're all a bunch of kooko, kooky guys. But he had one guy come up to him after a show one time. He'd done the show, and the guy came up and said, hey, I just want to let you know I've been following you for a long time. I really enjoy your stuff. And, uh, and Penn's shooting this video. He's telling this story. And he's emotionally like, you can see it, it's messing with him. He said, and he's like, and this guy was a good guy, really good guy. So he kept saying it. He's a good guy. And he gave me one of those little Bibles. He said the Psalms and the New Testament and, and stuff like that. And he said, and he wrote down like three different phone numbers and email addresses, you know, and, and ways I could get in contact with him. And he just said, he's like, you know, I just, I just want to give this to you. And, you know, and he left it at that. And he said, he's a really good guy. And he said, you know, I I got to thinking about that. He said, you Christians who believe that you've got the answer to all of life's problems, never do that. Because if you really believe that I'm dying and going to hell, why don't you ever tell me about it? If you really believe that. It would be like if you had cancer or somebody had cancer and you had the cure, are you just going to keep that to yourself? Are you going to just stay quiet and not give it to me? I would hope you would go and give them. He's like, you should proselytize. 
You should be out telling people about this. If you believe I'm going to hell, why are you not out there telling me about this? And this guy did. He's like, I still don't believe in Jesus or anything like that, but, but that was a good guy. How is that man going to be judged? On his success or on his faithfulness? His faithfulness. He shared the gospel. Penn hasn't changed his mind. Whose job is it to change his mind? Not mine. Not that guy's. Not yours. It's being faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But yet we just want to go along with the tide and it's just easier to not fight. It's so much easier as, as the river's running to just jump in and run with it instead of swimming against it. And when culture is going against the things of Scripture, is the responsibility and duty of believers to stand up and make their voices heard because we are a godly nation. And we fear God. Everything that we believe is founded in this Bible and everything you say and do should have a scriptural reference to it. And what we believe and what we do, and we should not just sit quietly and we should not just sit back. We have to have a biblical worldview. I cannot stress that enough. You guys, it's so important, especially in the day and age in which we live, because everybody will sit there and tell you, oh, you can't believe that. Oh, it's, this isn't true. Oh, you know, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. All of this other kind of stuff. That's total nonsense. The Bible's either true or it's not. Jesus either was the Son of God or he was not. Jesus either really died for our sins and was resurrected three days later, or he wasn't. And your belief in it is irrelevant, whether it's true or not, is all that matters. So people, when the light came into the world, they loved the darkness. They didn't love the light because they'd rather keep their deeds and keep their sinning and keep all of that instead of going to the light. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 3. The light was here. They chose to ignore it. We have that light in us. We should have a biblical worldview. When you have to make a tough decision, the first question out of your mouth should be, what does the Bible say about that? We need to be thinking, we need to be doing, and we need to be working.